0: beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we continue our series on encounters that some of the saints had with God. Our focus is on the Apostle Paul. Paul had several special encounters with God. The first was on the road to Damascus. Paul was hunting down Christians to bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. As he approached Damascus... Suddenly a bright light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The voice responded, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Through this encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul was converted to the Christian faith. A few days later, he was appointed to serve as an ambassador of Christ before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The book of Acts records other dreams and visions that Paul had, through which the Lord revealed himself to him. Acts 16, verses 9 and 10 tells of a vision in which Paul saw a man of Macedonia urging him to come over and help them. In Acts 18, verses 9 and 10, the Lord assures Paul that he should keep preaching and teaching in Corinth, for he had many people in that city, and he would keep Paul safe. In Acts 22, we read of Paul falling in a trance when praying in the temple in Jerusalem, and the Lord commanding him to get out of the city quickly, for his life was at risk. There are more examples But what's clear is that the Lord often made himself known to Paul through special means. Yet all these special encounters Paul had with God pale in comparison with with what Paul describes in our text. Paul describes something that had happened to him 14 years earlier. Since the second letter to the Corinthians was written in 55 or 56 A.D., This experience must have happened around eight years after Paul's conversion experience. Paul describes being caught up to the third heaven, to paradise. He doesn't know whether it was in the body or out of the body, but he had an incredible experience of nearness to God. He heard and saw unutterable things. Paul experienced something Mind-blowing. In our sermon, we'll consider Paul's incredible encounter with God and why he speaks of it now, 14 years later. We'll see that along with this incredible experience, the Lord brought something into Paul's life to keep him from being conceited. Paul calls it a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, which harassed him. It bothered him so much that on three different occasions, Paul prayed for its removal. But God did not take away what was marring Paul's enjoyment of life. Instead, he taught Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is the principle that the Lord wants us to learn and to apply to our own lives. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. Christ teaches us that his grace is sufficient for us, that his power is made perfect in weakness. Paul learns this through his special encounter with God, through his thorn in the flesh, And through his dependence on God's grace. It's important for us to understand why Paul speaks about a special encounter he had with God after keeping it a secret for 14 years. Paul was instrumental in the establishment of the church at Corinth. As a missionary, he traveled from city to city preaching the gospel to whoever was willing to listen. Paul had stayed in Corinth far longer than he normally did, a total of about 18 months. After he left, other teachers had arisen in the church who stirred up trouble. They tried to gain authority in the church by talking Paul down. They saw themselves as the spiritual elite. Their focus was on eloquence, philosophical wisdom, and spectacular displays of spiritual power. These men were false apostles, men who sought honor and glory for themselves and who led the congregation away from Christ? It's not for his own sake that Paul defends himself. Paul's heart was filled with love for the believers in Corinth. He had seen God's glorious work in many of their lives, how the Lord had taken them out of idolatry and sexual immorality and every other evil imaginable, and how he had brought them to a living faith in Jesus Christ. Now these false teachers were trying to draw them away from Christ and from the way of salvation. They did so by attacking Paul's credentials. They denied his apostleship. They tried to show how weak and how insignificant Paul's ministry was. They were claiming to have special encounters with God. They claimed that the church in Corinth should listen to them because God revealed himself to them in special ways. In our text, Paul is telling the Corinthian church not to follow these false teachers. Sarcastically, Paul calls them super-apostles. In the ancient world, people possessed no hope of glory in an afterworld. And therefore, people did everything in their power to achieve glory in this life. It was common for men to outdo one another by boasting of military or political or religious achievements. These were listed on monuments or on public buildings, or they were detailed in epic stories. The super apostles did that in the church of Corinth to get the congregation to turn away from the teachings of Paul and to follow them. Paul responds to their boasting with some boasting of his own. But know, beloved, that Paul did not boast in the conventional way. He did not boast to bring glory to himself. Paul boasts in his weaknesses, hardships, disappointment, and defeat. Christ's glory lays in the fact that he humbled himself and became a servant That he was willing to lay down his life for us on the cross. This message of the cross is what Paul tries to embody in his service of the churches. So Paul does not boast of his strengths and accomplishments. He boasts of his weaknesses and failures. At the end of 2 Corinthians 11, we see a prime example of Paul's boasting in his apparent weaknesses and failures. Paul speaks of his shameful exit from Damascus. He had gone there with the intent of rounding up Christians to bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. He, Paul, had planned to act on behalf of God to get rid of these troublesome followers of Jesus. Yet this educated and sincere Pharisee had left Damascus in a much different way than he had imagined. After his conversion... And preaching in the name of Jesus Christ, the governor had tried to arrest him. The hunter had become the hunted. Paul had slunk out of Damascus like a criminal. He'd been lowered down the wall in a smelly fish basket. What a contrast between between his arrogant approach to the city and his humiliating exit from it. There's something especially noteworthy about Paul's disgraceful exit from Damascus. Everyone in antiquity would have known that the finest military award for bravery was given to the soldier who was the first up the wall in the face of the enemy. Paul's point is devastatingly plain. He was the first down. Those false apostles were so very proud of their accomplishments. But while they were showing off their war medals, Paul tells us of how he ran in the face of the enemy. He's determined to boast of things that show his weakness. Paul knows that whenever church leaders draw attention to themselves, they take it away from where it belongs, on Christ, their master. In our text, Paul deals with one final claim that the super-apostles made over against him. They saw themselves as spiritually elite because of the visions and revelations that they had received. The only way for Paul to counter these claims was to show that God had also spoken to him. So Paul is forced to write about a special experience he had in which the Lord revealed himself to him. Paul speaks about knowing a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. He talks about the experiences that this man had in the third person. Paul does not want to be a glory hound. He's not a blowhard who claims, I this and I that. Yet verse 7 of our text makes it plain. It was Paul who experienced the surpassing greatness of these revelations. Let's examine the special encounter Paul had with God. He claimed to know a man in Christ who, 14 years earlier, was caught up to the third heaven. In ancient days, the first heaven referred to the atmosphere, where the clouds are and the birds fly. The second heaven to space, where the stars and the planets are. And the third heaven to the place where God lives. So, Paul claims to have entered the dwelling place of God. This is confirmed when he refers to this place as paradise. Paradise is a reference to the garden where Adam and Eve dwelt before the fall into sin, where they freely walked and talked with God. Paul says he doesn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body when he was caught up into God's presence. He also doesn't tell us much about his experience. All he says is that he heard things that cannot be told, which no man may utter. The Lord revealed certain things to Paul when he was taken up into heaven. But Paul's not allowed to share what they are. Yet what is clear is that God drew Paul near to him in heaven, that God allowed him, to experience his glory. Why was Paul taken up into heaven? Why was he allowed to experience the glory of God? One reason is to confirm him in his faith. By receiving a small foretaste of heaven, the Lord Jesus made Paul absolutely sure of who he was and what he had come to do in saving his people. Yet it's likely that the main reason why the Lord gave Paul this mind-blowing experience was to prepare him to hold fast to Christ in all the trials and the hardships he would endure during his apostolic ministry. Paul would suffer terribly for his faith, often being imprisoned, beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, in grave danger, suffering hunger and thirst, cold and exposure. It would have been so easy for him to doubt the Lord's faithfulness and care. Yet his special encounter with God strengthened and equipped him to deal with these questions. It's striking that at the end of his life, when contemplating whether the Lord would take him home or allow him further service, Paul wrote, I'm hard-pressed between the two, yet my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul's experience is not unique. It has happened more often that servants of Christ have had a special experience of God's glory In preparing this sermon, I came across the story of what happened to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a minister in Westminster Chapel in London. In the summer of 1949, he was so burnt out, discouraged and depressed that he took a summer off from preaching. Although he was a tremendous reader, he struggled even to read. He continued with his daily devotions of Bible reading and prayer, but even that was difficult. One morning, as he was getting dressed, he glanced at a book he was reading, and his eye caught the word glory on the page. All of a sudden, like a blaze of light, he felt the glory of God surround him. The nearness of God and the reality of heaven became overwhelming truths. Even though he was a prolific author, Martin Lloyd Jones never wrote of his experience. His biographer dug it up when speaking with close family members. Do you know why Paul and Martin Lloyd Jones and others who experienced a personal revelation of the nearness and glory of God don't speak of it? It's because they're filled with a holy shyness. God intended that personal, intimate experience for their edification, not for anyone else. So why does Paul now speak about this special moment in his life? Well, in the first place, to show the Corinthian congregation that they should not be too dazzled by these false apostles who claimed all kinds of religious experiences. If these so-called super-apostles did not focus their efforts on preaching Christ and exalting Him. The Corinthian believers should reject them as false teachers. There's also a second reason why Paul writes about his experience. It's so that he could explain what happened because of it. It's so that Paul could speak about the thorn and the flesh that he received. It's so that he could continue to boast about. His weaknesses brings us to our second point. Paul wants to teach us that Christ's grace is sufficient for us. For his power is made known through weakness. He learns this through his thorn in the flesh. In verse 7 of our text, Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Having undergone such a moving spiritual experience, the temptation was there for Paul to become proud. It would have been so easy for him to develop an attitude of superiority above other people. He had been caught up into paradise. He had heard unutterable words. He was like one of the spiritual elite, like Moses who had talked with God and Elijah to whom God had appeared. Paul says that a thorn in the flesh was given to him to keep him from being conceited. What was this thorn in the flesh The Greek word could refer to a stake which pegged him to the ground, or to a splinter which constantly irritated him. Paul speaks about a thorn in his flesh. Could have been something with his physical flesh. Some have suggested Paul struggled with malaria, or a serious eye condition, or epilepsy, or depression, or some other health struggle. It also have been something relating to his sinful flesh. Some have suggested that Paul struggled with a sin that clung to him, like bitterness or anger or lust. We know that the thorn in the flesh was not some birth defect or character flaw that had afflicted the apostle before his heavenly revelations. It was given to him after his revelations. Paul prayed fervently, for the removal of this thorn in the flesh, he tells us that there were three times he offered sustained prayer to God to take it away. Seeing how fervently Paul prayed for the removal of this thorn in the flesh shows us that it was something substantial, not just a minor irritant. For Christ's sake, Paul had willingly suffered beatings, imprisonment, stoning, being shipwrecked, hunger, thirst, cold, nakedness. We know that Paul was willing to put up with much suffering, with many deprivations. And so this thorn in the flesh was indeed a substantial affliction. Striking that Paul describes this thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan to harass me. It's something sent by Satan to wound, to limit To defeat the apostle. Paul recognizes that at the same time it comes from the Lord. He speaks about how this thorn in the flesh was given to him. He notes its purpose is to prevent him from becoming conceited. Shows that Paul also sees this thorn in the flesh is coming from God. Just like in Job's situation, God allowed Satan to harass his servant So also in Paul's situation, God is ultimately in control. Satan may have been the agent, but God was the superintendent. He allows Paul to suffer this thorn in the flesh for Paul's own benefit. Beloved, one of the beautiful things about this thorn in the flesh is that the Bible does not identify it. It doesn't tell us what it is. And that's so very beneficial for us. It helps us to relate to Paul's weakness. Whatever our weakness or hardship or need or distress may be, we can relate to Paul's suffering. At times, the Lord brings very difficult things into our lives it may be sickness, it may be financial distress maybe a breakdown of a relationship, maybe trying to deal with loved ones who stray from God's service or suffering the loss of a loved one taken out of this life. We may struggle deeply with despair or hopelessness, thinking that my lot in life is terrible, that it'll never improve. Formerly, we may have thought we were strong, that we handled life well, but God has exposed our vulnerability, our weakness, our powerlessness to change our circumstances. It's a sobering experience in life to be brought low, to feel utterly discouraged, to think my life's circumstances are hopeless. What do you do when that happens to you? How do you deal with life when confronted with your human weakness and powerlessness? How do you go forward in life when you're despairing and you don't know where to turn? Often we try to run away from our problems. We're ashamed of our weaknesses and we try to cover them up. In the world in which we live, it's not cool to be weak or vulnerable. We tend to hide our weaknesses. If they come into the public eye, we withdraw ourselves and we isolate ourselves. Yet Paul boasts of his weakness, for it's in his weakened state that he had learned to depend on God. It brings us to our final point, and that we see Paul's dependence on God's grace. Paul has prayed three times for the removal of his thorn in the flesh. Verse 9 of our text records the Lord's response. The Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's kind of an abstract response to Paul's prayer. How are we to understand these words? Is it a positive or a negative response to Paul's prayer? In a way, it's both. No, God did not take away Paul's thorn in the flesh. It was something he had to struggle with for the rest of his natural life. But God did promise to help Paul deal with his thorn in the flesh. John Calvin helps us to understand the Lord's answer. He distinguishes between ends and means in prayer. The end that Paul wanted was relief from the thorn. And he simply assumed that the means would be the thorn's removal. But God granted this end by another means. He gave Paul relief from the thorn, not by removing it, but by adding more grace, sufficient grace. The Lord promised Paul that in the distress caused by this messenger of Satan, he would give Paul everything he needed to endure in his faith. This was a hard lesson for Paul to learn. There was a time in his life when Paul depended completely on himself for everything in his life. As a legalistic Pharisee, Paul thought he could earn his own righteousness before God by his own good deeds. God cured him of that foolishness when he exposed Paul as a persecutor of the church. Paul acknowledged he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Yet he had received mercy because he acted in unbelief because God showed forth his grace towards him. Paul knew that with respect to his standing before God, it was by grace alone. Yet in life, Paul liked to be independent. He did not seek the counsel and advice of the apostles before setting out to fulfill Christ's charge to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul did not like to be beholden to anyone, even though as apostle he did not have to earn his own way, he did so. Paul was a tent maker, and he used his skills to support himself for many years. There were times when various churches partnered with him in the gospel, but much of the time Paul cared for himself. He liked to be strong and self-sufficient. But he faced the danger that he would quit relying on the Lord and rely only on himself. It's a danger for all of us, beloved, that we rely on ourselves. We want to be self-sufficient. By nature, we're proud. We're easily impressed with ourselves. We tend to think that we can make it through life by our own strength or skill or savvy or hard work. When we face hardships and struggles, we think we can figure out the best way to navigate life. I'm not saying we'll never pray about our struggles. But do we really depend on God for help? Do we depend on his grace and spirit to deal with the things that really get us down? In our text, the Lord taught Paul a key principle for the Christian life. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The Lord is speaking here of his sustaining grace, of helping his people through the midst of some of the hardest struggles of life of strengthening us so we can endure through life's most bitter trials. The Lord speaks of how when we're empty, He fills us, of how when we are without any remaining power, He strengthens us. God showed forth His sustaining power towards His Son, Jesus Christ, during his most intense struggles in life. Think of Jesus' struggles in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ was in agony, thinking of the suffering he would have to endure. His suffering was so severe, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. Yet the Father strengthened him, so he was willing to face his betrayal. The abandonment of his disciples, his crucifixion, and ultimately his suffering of God's wrath against all our sins. Think of the grace Christ showed to all those who hurt and abused him, of his prayer on the cross for those who had crucified him, of his grace towards the criminal hanging next to him. In a similar way, the Lord showed Paul his sustaining grace. Paul learned to be content, despite the hardships and sufferings he endured. He writes, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For... When I am weak, then I am strong. Through the thorn in the flesh that God did not remove from him, Paul learned it was when he was weak that he was strong. It sounds contradictory, but it's not. The thorn tormented Paul. It made him humble, it kept him down, it seemed to weaken him, but in fact, it made him strong. Do you know why? It's because Paul could not deal with a thorn in his own human strength. He needed God's sustaining grace to deal with it. It made him dependent on God's power. Instead of his own, independent of God, we do stupid stuff. But when we're dependent on him, he can use us powerfully to accomplish his purposes in our lives. Beloved, has God brought some thorn in the flesh into your life? You're dealing with something unpleasant, something hard something really painful in your life? Do you feel harassed, broken down, or discouraged? Do you feel broken? Are you despairing? Do you sometimes feel like it could not get any worse? God doesn't bring such things into our lives because he hates us or because he enjoys giving us a hard time. He does so to break down our independence, our self-sufficiency. He wants to teach us to rely on him for everything we need in life. The thorns of the flesh we need to contend with may make us seem weak. That's what we tend to think. But it's not really true. For it's when we're weak, it's when we're humbled, that we learn to depend on the grace of Christ in our lives. And when we do that, beloved, we become strong. It's our reliance on Christ that makes all the difference. When we look to Christ and he strengthens us, that's when we're truly strong. That's when with Paul we can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Beloved, be comforted by the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Receive encouragement from his promise that he will provide you with sufficient grace to deal with all the trials and the sorrows and the disappointment and despair he allows into your life. Be confident. God has a purpose for the hardships and the struggles you face in your life. Don't be ashamed of your weaknesses, of your failings. Rather, rejoice in them and even boast about them. For it's when we recognize and when we confess our weaknesses that we are truly strong. For it's in such times that we learn... Not to depend on ourselves, but on our Savior, Jesus Christ, and on his sustaining grace. Amen.